Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy, today, and on the show this week, I am sharing uh, listener letters with you. I get hundreds, if not thousands, of letters over the course of a year, and I, I keep a file of some of them on my desk um, when people ask me to um, specifically say that, that it's something they would want shared, uh, I'll save them. Or sometimes I'll see a post online or someone will send me something that I think, um, you know, will hit home with listeners and I'll ask for their permission. So just so you know, I will never read your letters. Don't write to me and tell me your story. Don't think that it's going to be broadcast if you um, do write to me. I love hearing from you, and I'm happy to help out as many people as I can. Um, but definitely, there's always a, a power in sharing these stories, and um, not everyone is comfortable coming on the air. So sometimes people are much more comfortable with just writing it out and sending it in. And uh, every once in a while, I, I do these listener letters episodes, and they're, they're pretty popular. I want to share a little bit with you about what's going on with me before I uh, go into the listener letters, because I've had kind of a funny thing happening lately. Um, I've been in physiotherapy for some problems I'm having with my foot, and I've been ignoring it for close to a year now, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and um, and it's just, here's me being a typical typical person who's denying her own discomfort. It's just plantar fasciitis. It's no big deal. Everybody gets it. You stretch. You just, you know, you wear proper footwear. It's no big deal. But I've been telling myself for so long that it's no big deal. And finally, my husband was watching me literally hobble uh, across the, the living room. And he was like, you have to go to the doctor because we ha- we're going to the Grand Canyon this spring and have all this hiking planned. And I thought, oh, brother, I'm going to go to the doctor. He's going to tell me it's plantar fasciitis and put me on some anti-inflammatories. And Anyway, I went, though, just to make my husband happy. And, you know, my doctor said, you, you don't have to live with this. Go to, like, we can get you to physio. You're going to be fine in a month, and you know, this will probably never bother you again. So sure enough, now I'm in physio, and uh, the, the physiotherapist um, believes that this is probably caused from overcompensating uh, a couple years ago when you will recall, because I've complained about it at length and written about it at length that I broke my leg. Uh, It's two years ago now since I did that, but as a result, I've been putting too much pressure on the other side of my body and have done some structural damage to the foot. And it's actually more than just the diagnosis of you know, strain on the bottom of my foot. I've actually done a bit of damage that that we're now working to repair. So anyway, physiotherapist assures me that after a month of coming twice a week to have him stick needles into my feet and legs and run a TENS machine on me and put me through a little bit of discomfort a couple times a week that within a month I'm going to be fine. So I tell you all this not because I think you care about my feet because I don't even care that much about them. But just how um, how long we're willing to be uncomfortable and to, to completely deny our discomfort when a solution is so very much in front of us. And I, I have to shake my head at myself because this, to me, seems to be an echo of the same pattern that I went through with sobriety. It's an echo of a pattern I went through you know, when I had gallbladder surgery a couple of years ago, I mean, I just do not listen to my body. and 
it's the vestiges of that codependency of needing someone else to tell me who I am. Um, I, I really didn't take my discomfort seriously until, you know, it was my husband who, who said something. And, and until it was impacting another person, it didn't matter that much to me. So these, these are things we are learning as we go in recovery. And I'm sure each of you could, could tell me a similar story about yourself, you know, different details, same message, right, of how we just pretend something isn't bothering us, doesn't matter, isn't important, even though it's really uncomfortable and, as it turns out, quite easy to fix. So um, what, whatever that means to you, uh, take, to apply your own version to it. And, uh, and, and if you are denying something about yourself that needs fixing, big or small, I encourage you to go and, and take care of it because um, it, it does matter. And there's no need to be uncomfortable when there are great solutions there. Well, let's get to these letters. Um, this one has been sitting on my desk for a long time because uh, JJ, I will call her. She asked me not to use her real name. So JJ wrote to me and, um, and she actually wrote, you know, quite a long, a long story, um, which was pudic for her. And she encouraged me to share with listeners, you know, in whole or in part um, of her story. And even though all of it was really moving and insightful, in the interest of time, I've just sort of chosen part of it to share with you the second half of it which talks about really when things ramped up for her with the changes in her life and, and, and how um, her relationship with alcohol really came to a head. So just by way of quick backstory, you know, she, she opened her letter by saying that she really boiled down her entire need to drink looking back that it all comes down to shame and anxiety. She was either, it was a cycle of anxiety and shame, self-medicating anxiety, waking up in shame, but it was also trying to numb the shame and the, and the numbing created anxiety. So it's not just a loop. It's almost like, you know, the infinity sign where one feeds the other, feeds the other, feeds the other. And um, a lot of us can really relate to that. Uh, and so she grew up as a PK, as, we called them when I went to Lutheran boarding school, but uh, she says she's a preacher's kid, so I don't know that it was Lutheran necessarily, but all of us that went to school with a PK know that they were often the the ones who acted out the most, and certainly that was her case. Um, she says that she she found alcohol as a high school teenager and, and loved it and um, binge drank and still managed to go to church on Sunday, but with a hangover that she convinced her parents was car sickness. And they uh, either believed her or were in denial themselves. Anyway, that sort of, you know, binge drinking pattern went on through her life. And so we pick up her story uh, after she's married and uh, she's got two little kids and her husband is on the road a lot. And uh, JJ says, I began to use the help of wine to unwind at the end of a long day. The wine provided both the physical and mental relief of caring for two young children alone. Eventually, I looked forward to my husband's traveling because then I could relax after the kids went to bed the way I wanted to with a glass of wine and without judgment. And so began my secret love affair with wine. I allowed that wine glass to become my spouse and my best friend when my husband was gone and eventually when he was also home. Wine became my confidant and my partner. It was my stress reliever at the end of a physically demanding day. It was my off switch to the constant self-criticizing voices in my head. And most of all, it was my therapist because it could take away my anxieties and worries, or so I thought. Uh, 
I did not drink during the day, but just knowing that I had that reward of a glass of wine waiting for me after a hard day's work at home helped me cope and manage through the day. I began to look forward to my alone time with wine after putting the kids to bed. The wine magically cured my loneliness in the moment, and it was so good to be releasing the tension in my body, if only for the night. As I learned later, this new best friend I had found in wine was deceiving me all along, as it was really just intensifying all of my problems, both mentally and physically. Soon I justified a glass of wine every night because I deserved it. And eventually, one glass just did not do the trick anymore. Some nights I found myself drinking as much as three glasses on a weeknight alone. While a few glasses might not seem like a lot to some, it is way too much for my body. I would wake up hungover, regretful, and angry about my situation. I began to need daily naps just to get through the day and evening with the kids until I could sit down and enjoy a glass again. Thank God my kids never had an emergency in the middle of the night where I needed to drive them. Thinking back on this causes me a lot of sadness and shame. This urge to drink every night began to drive a wedge between me and my husband because I became grumpy on nights when he was in town since I felt like I couldn't drink like I wanted, even though he was not actually monitoring or judging me. Though on the nights he was home, he would often go to bed before me and I would stay up just to drink in front of the TV, binge eating potato chips or candy with my red wine. Yuck. Wine became more important to me than time with my husband. Shamefully, wine became my number one priority. This shift obviously set us up for an unhealthy marriage and a lot of undeserved resentment and anger towards him. He's always been a very supportive and loving husband and did nothing to deserve my anger. Many times I battled anger and rage inside without even knowing the cause of it, and my OCD began to rear its ugly head more and more after having kids, and my husband began to pick up on my mental struggles. I would get stuck in looping thoughts and just couldn't make a decision to save my life about anything, even minor things. This struggle in my head fueled my desire for wine at night. He encouraged me to seek counseling for my OCD and anxiety, and I did off and on, but it did not seem to help. When we vacationed, I always took this opportunity to binge drink. When my kids were four and seven, my husband won a work trip to an island, and on the final night of the trip, the company had a huge party. I drank so much at the party that I was extremely hungover and sick the next day for the travel home. I felt so ashamed to be traveling with my kids, feeling hungover, barely functioning. My husband used the excuse that I was tired and was motion sick from traveling, which I do get, but this was purely a hangover. Most likely, I was a huge embarrassment to him because I wasn't fooling anyone who saw me drinking the night before. I still struggle with the memory of this today because it is one of my most shameful parenting memories. Just recalling this event brings tears today many years later. As time went on, I kept my focus on parenting and drinking, and I became less and less present with my husband. My mind was all consumed by planning out my next opportunity to drink and thinking about how much I could allow myself. Thankfully, I was always able to remain a good and loving mother to my children. I just can't say the same for my relationship with my husband. And while I never drank during the day, except on vacation, of course, I began to spend the whole day thinking about my next drink and craving it. I would hold out on wine until the kids were in bed, so at least until 8 p.m. every night, but my mind was consumed by my secret lover way earlier in the day. I would plan the timing of our evening activities just to be sure we were home and the kids were in bed in time for me to enjoy my wine. 
on nights when we got home late, it would still not stop me from having my wine. I would just stay up extra late alone just to get the wine I deserved, even if it meant being sleep deprived. Wine was a nightly habit. I would drink one to three glasses of white at night and go to bed buzzed or fall asleep on the couch after drinking. Maybe you would call that passing out, but at the time, I honestly fooled myself into thinking I had just fallen asleep. Waking up at 2 a.m. feeling horrible, and then in the morning have a slight or a big hangover and spend the next morning feeling guilty, shameful, and overcompensating to cover up that I was hungover. I became very skilled at faking that I was not hungover and pushed through my daily life like nothing was wrong. But my days would be exhausting because I started each day on unrefreshed sleep and then spent the day trying to prove to everyone that I was fully functioning. On the mornings I was hungover, I would tell myself that I would not drink that night, only to find that by 2 p.m., when I felt better after my nap, my mind would start planning the next drink, and I could not wait to reconnect with my wine. As time went on and priorities continued to shift, I became impatient while tucking my children into bed and it was because it was delaying my date with wine, and then the shame resurfaces. By the way, JJ, this sounds very familiar to me, and I'm sure to many of our listeners. I mean, this was pretty much exactly the pattern that I can relate to as well. She goes on, as my relationship with my husband became more strained, I took to wine just to put me in the mood for sex. He would encourage me to drink sometimes in hope that I would even consider having sex. But many times, due to too many drinks, I would get too tired and even pass out before anything even happened between us. And when we did have sex, it would drag on forever, not in a good way, because my body was so numb and not responding due to the alcohol. Not to mention, many nights ended in fights. On the weekends when I allowed myself to binge on alcohol, I would always want just more, one more drink, even as we were going off to bed. We would return home from a date night out in which I consumed three to five drinks, way more than my husband, and I would still pour myself a glass of wine to take to bed with me. I always overindulged on nights out with my husband. Neither of us could even enjoy the time together, but I didn't care as long as I had enough to drink. As my relationship with my husband became more and more strained, so did my relationship with his parents. Because of the distance they traveled to visit, they would stay with us for a full week on each visit. I began to realize how much I liked my personal space and having control over things in my environment. So having them in, that, in my house for that many nights was just too stressful for me. Eventually, on their long visits, I found myself escaping to my bedroom earlier and earlier in the evening, sneaking wine with me so that I could drink alone and relax. As my kids got older and a little easier to parent, I spent a lot of time working out and learning to cook and eat healthy meals. I became known among my mom friends as a good example of healthy living. And while I had great discipline in these areas, alcohol was one area I could not keep in check. Little did they know I was wrecking my healthy lifestyle every night with alcohol. As I started using alcohol nightly to quiet my mind and relax, I became more irritable and tense wings during the day. Drinking had started to take a toll on my body. My hands would shake and my IBS, which she has had for since her early, since her twenties, became so bad that it caused me extreme worry and anxiety about even leaving the house. I was not even able to drive my kids to school without the panic or urge for the bathroom. I began to go to various doctors looking for explanation of my symptoms, body aches and pains, IBS, shaking hands, night sweats, weakness, brain fog, etc. No one could find anything wrong, but no one asked me about my drinking. 
Of course, if they did, I would have lied anyway. I also knew that if I was going to accurately investigate my health concerns, I would need to stop drinking altogether in order to get a real picture of if there was actually anything wrong with me or if my symptoms were the result of my drinking. And I just wasn't ready to break up with red wine yet. So on continued the drinking and growing health concerns into my 40s. And then in the early 40s, I began several efforts to moderate my drinking. I would set limits for myself, like no drinking on weeknights, only two drinks on a Friday, Saturday night, etc. And this would never last more than a week. And each time it would only frustrate my husband that I couldn't stick to the rules and that I had to put a plan in place for myself. So instead of drinking less after these multiple attempts to moderate, I found myself drinking more. I'm emphasizing that because, boy, that sounds familiar to me and I'm sure a lot of listeners. I discovered the power of straight vodka or bourbon to add to my staple of drink of red wine. Sipping on a shot of straight vodka would give me an even quicker, warm and fuzzy feeling and was less filling than wine. But that didn't mean I gave up my wine. This was just a new addition along with my glass of wine. And she talks about how she became sneakier, started buying wine in boxes, sneaking to the kitchen, and all of that was a red flag. Uh, she talks about a really unpleasant uh, New Year's Eve party, uh, hurting herself, basically. Another red flag was that she was starting to hurt herself, falling and waking up with bruises and that kind of thing. And we jump ahead a little bit. Finally, at the age of 44, I realized it was time for a change. I was tired of this lifestyle and ready to get in touch with the real me, to find my purpose and to show my authentic self to others. So I made my first real attempt to quit on January 1st, 2016. I made a New Year's resolution I would not drink for one year. I began to listen to podcasts like The Bubble Hour daily to hear women share their stories about drinking. I found that I could relate to so many of these high-functioning women. I read book after book, like Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, Alan Carr's book, Quit Drinking Without Willpower, Jason Vale's book, Kick the Drink Easily, all in an effort to learn about different aspects, about different approaches to stopping. However... I only made it 18 days before reuniting with my secret lover and best friend, alcohol. We hit it off like no time had gone by, all the while continuing to research into the dry life. And then, so that was the first part of 2016. And then, um, so she goes back to drinking. That summer has a really unpleasant experience in Las Vegas where she finds herself not only drunk in Las Vegas, but alone and drunk. And so she came home and uh, JJ decided to go and uh, try going to an AA meeting. And um, she did that for 30 days. On day 30, I accepted my one-month chip only to never return to a meeting. By day 36, I felt I had proven to myself and my husband that I could control or stop drinking whenever I wanted to. So that was good enough. And we drank together that night, all the while setting new rules in place for myself. My new strategy going forward was to only have four drinks a week, two on Fridays and two on Saturdays. I was able to stick to this for the next month, but I felt so deprived and spent way too much time and energy wishing I could have more. And then she finds by the next month, by August, so we're rolling into late summer here, um, that uh, she's really tired of moderating. And she writes in her journal, you will never feel fulfilled as long as you keep drinking. I am broken. 
So she decides that fall that she's going to, again, try quitting at New Year's. January 1st, 2017, alcohol-free. It was a breeze. The first three weeks, I was floating on a pink cloud, which is the term used in recovery to dis- describe the initial high you get from making this big positive change in your life. But right at three weeks, that pink cloud disintegrated under me, and my fight to maintain my new lifestyle began. And uh, she starts looking for ways to make this work. And, uh, and she wrote to me and um, and asked me for some advice, and I suggested um, adding on, which is what I often say, you know, add a patch to your patchwork quilt and keep adding until you get what you need to cover yourself. And um, one thing I suggested was a recovery coach. And so um, she and her husband decided that uh, they would make that investment in coaching and um, her husband wanted to do whatever he could to help her make a positive change because she really had finally opened up to him that uh, she was struggling more than he knew. So February 2nd, 2017, she writes, I had my first call with a recovery coach uh, and, uh, and that accountability really kept her going in the early days of living alcohol-free, it was my faith and a clear mind that kept me from falling apart during several major blows. Only seven days after I put down my glass of wine for the very last time, my mom, age 72, was diagnosed with a terminal illness. The doctor said there was no cure, but with management, she could live 10 years. I was devastated by her illness and at the same time, thankful that I had a clear mind and the ability to now always be present with her as she began her battle. Only five months after this, my husband was forced to resign from his job. And while that began a very stressful time, I saw it as an opportunity for quality time with him and our kids. I began to see how my mindset was shifting away from the glass always being half empty to the glass being half full, except now my glass was filled with sparkling water. Um, so she says after 18 years of marriage, she's really started taking some steps to reconnect with her husband and find closeness again. And she writes, after being alcohol free for several months, I discovered our sex life was way better now than it had ever been. Uh, that has been one of the many wonderful gifts of giving up alcohol completely. I finally began to properly investigate my health concerns and was able to address the root cause of my IBS. While not completely cured, I have made huge improvements, and to no surprise, it is much easier to heal without alcohol constantly inflaming my gut. Today, I am still actively working on healing my body, my mind, and my marriage as I continue to grow in my faith and find my purpose in this life. While the first year of living alcohol-free was very challenging, it has become easier and easier with every month that has gone by. I have not had a drink in 20 months, and I can honestly say that it no longer holds a grip on me. I can, no long, I can actually say I no longer miss it, and it is with much happiness that I say goodbye to that old friend, in air quotes, in, bra- in quotes, friend, forever. So thank you, JJ, for sharing your story. And I'm sure many of you can relate. And she actually sent that to me several months ago. So she should be uh, have just celebrated a milestone here in, in the new year. So uh, congratulations to you, JJ. And, and thank you for sharing your story and for patiently waiting while I um, gathered the time to read it. Um, the next story is uh, 
something a little bit lighter. This is from Sarah, who uh, is a, a frequent poster in one of the online groups that I'm a part of. And Sarah is someone who uses humor to uh, get through the things that stress her out in life. And um, she just is a real, a real delight. And she keeps a lot of us from taking ourselves too seriously, I think. And from, from, uh, Thinking that, you know what, when you quit drinking, you think, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to have fun again. I'm never going to laugh again. I'm, I'm going to, like, there's going to be nothing good left in my life. And then you're around someone like Sarah, or if you've listened to previous episodes, the first person that comes to mind is Shelly. If you haven't listened to Shelly, Shelly with an I, her episode, which was last year, um, listen to that hilarious lady. Um, these gals just, you know, keep us smiling and laughing and remembering that there's still a lot of lighter stuff in life. Anyway, um, Sarah posted this to our group and, and she gave me permission to share it with listeners here. I am just scrolling through here and love to read little tidbits of how everyone's life has improved so much in sobriety. But I would also like to mention that I have been sober for three and a half years. And number one, I am at this moment, give or take 20 pounds overweight and at least 10 pounds more than my last day one. Number two, I had a really great job when I quit drinking. And since we have since moved twice and except for substitute teaching, I have been unemployed that entire time. I am finally starting a real job search. It's so weird how they don't just fall in your lap. But we live in an area where if I ended up making something around $15 an hour, that'll be good. And I can't even fathom like an actual salaried position with benefits and a cubicle. Number three, sobriety has not unlocked any new levels of marital marital bliss. (laughs) In fact, I am still noticing and processing stuff about my husband and our married life that I was previously too drunk, hungover, drink obsessed to pay attention to. Number four, my children have not become prodigies. My soon-to-be sixth grader still has the handwriting of a toddler, and my soon-to-be kindergartner is probably going to get expelled on her first day because I can't get her to stop yelling the word butthole and laughing hysterically. Number five, the money I've saved by not drinking has not allowed us to take any fabulous vacations or make any indulgent purchases, although we actually have made a bunch of indulgent purchases that we had absolutely no business making. Despite all this, my life is a million, billion, trillion times better, and my health, my ability to be a good employee, my marriage, and my parenting have improved in just as many tiny little undetectable to the naked eye ways. Uh, Our financial situation is total garbage, really very bad, but that's on us. So if you're looking for a biggest loser style of transformation and don't see it, dig deeper. It might be cumulative and it, thank you. I love you. You're hilarious. Uh, I really hope she just scoops up all her writings and publishes a book someday because I will be, I I will look forward to that. Uh, Hilarious. Uh, I received this more recently from Kristen, who uh, who wrote uh, a reflection on, on her um, last year of sobriety, first year, the past year of sobriety, and she writes this. Over a year of sobriety, I can say that I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. In the beginning, I really struggled with that label. And I know a lot of people don't like it for obvious reasons, but let me tell you what it means to me now. Alcohol was my solution to everything. It was the way I dealt with stress, loneliness, sadness, joy, excitement, and boredom. This list is not exhaustive. 
I started drinking as a solution to my crippling social anxiety and the low self-esteem I had when I was 15. I was a weekend blackout drinker, having zero control over how much I drank or where I would end up or who I would end up with. And this caused me a lot of stress and shame in my teen years. And every week, I lived for the weekend so I could forget the mess I got myself into and feel okay, only to get myself into another mess. The cycle continued for years. Then my drinking slowly morphed. I was still a blackout drinker when I went out, but in the end, I just preferred to be alone. What was the use of putting all that effort, getting ready, leaving the house, pretending to be interested in the well-being of another human? I just gave that up, and I went straight for what I really wanted, alcohol, to make me feel okay. It got to the point where I was drinking alone in my bedroom every night. When I would have an opportunity to be alone in a house and have no commitments or none that I felt I could bail on, I would stay alone in the house and drink by myself all day. For the most part, though, I was able to keep going to school and work and put on the facade that everything was okay. And it wasn't until I got the courage to be honest with myself that my life was, in fact, very much not okay. I decided to reach out for help. My solution was not working anymore. A hangover wasn't just a hangover anymore. I felt deep in my core that I was dying. It was a feeling of despair that I had never felt before. When I decided to quit drinking, I started listening to a podcast about not drinking, and once in a while they made a reference to AA that seemed to be really helping people. And then I found an online group and reached out to find someone to go to an AA meeting with. And from that first meeting, I started to have hope that there's a different way of living, an honest way of living. I'll never forget the first time I sat in a small room and listened to people share about their own experiences. The vulnerability and honesty and love that I felt in the room was something I had never seen or experienced before. I felt like my jaw had hit the floor. I resonated with people very quickly, even though uh, any talk of the steps in the program went right over my head. Even though there were people that had experiences that sounded worse than mine, even though I was still questioning whether I was an alcoholic, I resonated pretty close to everyone. I've been going to meetings ever since without question. I have a sponsor, and I'm slowly working through the steps. I'm not even halfway through the steps, but my life feels very different. I don't feel like I'm dying anymore. I don't wake up with a feeling of dread every day. I don't have so much hope and excitement. I ha sorry, I now have so much hope and excitement about my life. I'm gaining confidence, self-worth, and tools to ride the waves of stress, loneliness, sadness, joy, and excitement. I'm part of a community of amazing people who genuinely care about one another's well-being and allow each other to show up exactly as they are. I'm practicing new behaviors that I never knew I needed. Did I say I have hope and I'm excited about my life? That alone is a huge stretch from where I was just over a year ago. So if you're feeling uneasy about being labeled as an alcoholic or an addict, just consider that the label can actually be a blessing. To me, it represents honesty, open-mindedness, and connection. It was a doorway to the kind of growth that I didn't think would ever be possible, the doorway to allow me to do things I never thought I could do without alcohol. I'm so glad that I kept an open mind as I tepidly practiced saying, my name is Kristen and I am an alcoholic, because this acceptance has turned out to be the biggest blessing in my life so far. I speak from my own experience and respect that everyone's life is different. I'm not saying you should go to AA or need to call yourself an alcoholic. This is what has worked for me. Kristen, thank you so much for sharing that. And that is particularly resonates with me because I posted on my blog yesterday that I've kind of made a decision 
um, this year, I made a promise to myself that I was going to start going to 12-step meetings within my community just for the sake of making some connections. I really realized that um, that I, I just have the sort of this vacuum around me. I've got tons of friends, tons of support, and because it's, you know, all sourced online and even though we do meet in real life and we talk and we connect and I feel extremely supported and loved and and I am able to give service and and I feel really solid in my recovery um I really felt like um that I just I really wanted to tap into what is available to me in my own community and also to just just take that step and just just try it see what it's like and um and really for the fellowship more than anything, but also, you know, for the experience. And I, I wanted to be able to share my eight month or sorry, eight month, eight year, it feels like eight days sometimes, eight year um, uh, soberversary is coming up on the 20th. And I thought, how lovely would it be to, you know, at least be able to share that with a room full of people that are, are sober with me. And even though the, all the normies in my life are happy for me. Um, it, it really does mean a lot to share it with other people. So, so uh, Kristen's letter really resonates with me, um, especially because uh, here I am, you know, all this sober time, and yet I, I still feel nervous that I'm going to be, you know, walking into a meeting and um, feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Funny how things go. The last letter I have for you is something that was written from Jess and um, Jess wrote this a while ago and I, I really loved this and she gave me permission to use it. Um, Jess, at the time of writing this and Jess, if you're listening, touch base and let me know how you're doing and where you're at today. Um, this was written a while ago and uh, at this point at least in, in her journey, uh, Jess is what we would call sober curious where uh, she's sort of thinking thinking about quitting. Here's what she wrote. I see you there, sober people. You there. You standing there with your LaCroix or strawberry-infused tea from Starbucks. I see you there, you sober people, talking amongst yourself in your nice pressed clothes without wine stains peeking from your collar. I see you there, you sober people, checking your watch, wondering if 9 o'clock is too soon to leave so you can watch the rest of Downton Abbey on Netflix. I see you there, you sober people, looking at the girl who is lost at King's Cup, who also lost her shirt because of it, and who is now making out with some random guy. I see you there, you sober people, softly smiling at the dude puking on the corner underneath the host's stairwell. I see you there, you sober people, stepping over the guy, not wearing any pants, who might have a concussion because he banged his head on the sidewalk. I see you there, you sober people who called the ambulance to help that guy, passed out and bleeding, while everyone else partied over him. I see you there, you sober people waiting to go home until you know the guy with a possible concussion will be all right. I see you there, you sober people, shaking hands with the other sober people, making plans for a coffee meet up tomorrow. I see you there, you sober people. I see you. I hope to be your friend someday soon. Thank you, Jess. I don't know why, but that just brings tears to my eyes. Maybe um, remembering the way that when the red flags were desperately trying to get my attention, how I looked around and and watched the people that weren't drinking and 
wondered if I could conduct myself in the same way. So I think a lot of us can really remember how that feels. And I love your poem, Jess. Thank you so much. So uh, that's it for me for this week. A shorter episode, bubble hour is just half a bubble. Uh, you can use the rest of the time to have a bubble bath or go for a walk or maybe write me a letter, something that I can put into my file and read for the next time. Um, I guess that's it. I just thank you all so much for being part of this community, for sharing your stories, for loving one another, for writing in and sending encouragement or things you post on the page or send in to the bubble hour at gmail.com. I I thank you for all of it. And um, I'm just really grateful to be part of, of your recovery patchwork and, uh, and that you're part of mine. That's all for this time. I'll be back next week until next time, everyone take good care. Not proud that that was me and take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. In the dark corners where shame lies behind. We think you're strong. You keep it on the side It just stays and wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can't shine When you see oh, I did Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Talk to the looking at you in there And the one